Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week is uh, a week that we are devoting to Tom Jensen, who's been with us a number of times. I don't know how many times, probably 15 or 20 as a matter of fact. Tom Jensen is the director of public policy polling, a a, a polling company that is uh, recognized and has a nationwide reputation for doing polling on current issues, political campaigns, and so forth. And Tom has always been kind to share with us the results of his most recent polls, and and it always has given us some insight into what the public is thinking. So, Tom, welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you. We're delighted to have you back, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure when the last time you were on, but a lot of things continue to happen, and uh, so. Uh, so what what have you been polling on recently uh, in this uh, sort of off political year? Well, you know, one reality of politics these days is that the election cycle next starts about the second the previous election cycle ends. So we're already doing a lot of stuff looking towards 2022. And I think the sort of overarching theme that's interesting in our polling right now is that the national political climate is very similar to what it was on election day nine months ago. It really has not changed that much. Uh, For instance, if we poll on Joe Biden's approval rating somewhere, his approval margin is about the same as his vote margin was in November. So for instance, uh, if we do a North Carolina poll where Biden lost by one point, we'll usually find about 47% of voters approve of the job he's doing, 48% disapprove that same sort of one point spread against him that we saw in November. Uh, And sort of the big picture thing that we take away from that is that nobody's changing their minds about anything. If you liked Biden and voted for him in November, you think he's doing a good job, just about 100%. If you didn't vote for Biden in November and didn't like him, you don't think he's doing a good job about 100%. Usually we see a lot more volatility in this sort of thing the first year that someone's president. And this time around, we're finding that people are just so dug in that there's not a whole lot of fluctuation. Well, that's that's kind of interesting. And, you know, I guess from what little bit I'm out in the public, I'm, I'm seeing that. I, I know people who voted for Biden and people who voted for Trump. And, and I find that uh, I don't see that anybody's really changed their mind. So that uh, I'm not surprised that you would come up with that result. What about... Uh, the overall way that the government is going and things are happening, is, is there any major change in how people feel like uh, we are proceeding with the Biden administration that's different from the approval rating? Basically, the difference is just that uh, people who said things were going in the, direct, in the right direction a year ago now say that they're going in the wrong direction. And people who said that they were going in the wrong direction a year ago now say that they're going in the right direction. You know, that question of right direction, wrong track has just become so correlated with how people feel about the president, whereas maybe in a previous time, you could feel like things weren't going that well, but you would still think that the president was doing a good job. Or you might think that things were going great, but you still didn't like the president. Uh, And now there's just pretty much total correlation. If you like the president, you say things are going well. If you don't like the president, you say things are going poorly. Uh, And I feel like historically that might have been more the other way around. You would think about what direction things were going in, and then you'd decide if you liked the president or not. But I think now you decide if you like the president or not, and then that determines how you think things are going. This is something that both sides are guilty of. Uh, You know, during the Trump years, whether you like Trump or not, most people's personal economic situations improved 
during the Trump years, regardless of their party affiliation. But when you would ask people, has your economic situation gotten better, worse, or stayed about the same since, uh, since Trump became president, Democrats would say that their economic situation had gotten worse, even though in most cases it had probably gotten better. And it was the same thing during the Obama years. Obama in inherited a disastrous economy from President Bush, and pretty much everyone's situation got better while Obama was president. But you ask that same question, Republicans would say, oh, my economic situation got worse while Obama was president. Same thing with Democrats under Trump. Their economic situation didn't get worse, but people are so polarized and everything's so dominated by how people feel about politics these days that their answers to a lot of these sort of big picture questions about the direction things are going is just filtered through whether they like the guy in the White House or not. The results you're getting in North Carolina, are you doing polling in other parts of the country and is it significantly the same or different? It's the same everywhere in the country. We're not seeing any big movement uh, in terms of how people sort of feel about Biden from how they voted in November anywhere that we're polling. And the overall political climate is very much similar to how it was in November, which I think basically is a 50-50 country with maybe the slightest of leans uh, in a democratic direction. And that, everything being the same as, a, as it was in November, is actually good news for Democrats when you sort of put it in a historical context. Uh, when Barack Obama became president in January of 2009, by that summer, the political climate had completely fallen apart for Democrats. When Donald Trump became president in January of 2017, by that summer, the political climate had completely fallen apart for Republicans. So the last two times we had a new president, the country had really turned against their party wholesale within six or seven months of their taking office. And that's not happening with Biden. It's not that people are liking Democrats any more than they did in November. They're not liking Republicans any more than they did in November, too. Uh, and for Democrats and for Biden, the overall national political climate being status quo compared to the last presidential election is very good news compared to what happened to Obama and Trump and their parties in their first terms. We're still 15 months away from the midterms. It certainly could still completely fall apart for Democrats over that course of time, but it's taking longer to completely fall apart for Democrats than it usually does in a president's first term for their party. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure the Democrats are hoping to strengthen their position uh, essentially, what I'm gathering from you is you're saying unless something radically changes, we're not going to see any radical difference after the midterm election at this point in time. No big picture radical difference. But the, the thing is with um, next year's midterm elections is you could possibly have the exact same political climate as uh, this last November and Republicans still end up in control of the House and Senate even if there hasn't been a wholesale shift in the country. Because as we head into this redistricting cycle for the House, something that's sort of an interesting dichotomy is when Democrats have gotten completely in charge of a state, they're actually putting in independent redistricting so that now that they have total control, it's not like Democrats in a state like Virginia where they have total control or Democrats in a state like Colorado where they have total control they are giving up the right to draw new congressional maps that are really positive for their sides. Republicans, on the other hand, in states where they have total control are not giving up that possibility. So Republicans are gonna have the opportunity to redraw lines in the most 
beneficial manner possible to them in states like Texas and Florida and Georgia and here in North Carolina. And Republicans can probably pick up the seats that they need to get control of the U.S. House just by how they draw these new district lines and some of the more populous states. So they don't really have to win over a single voter who voted Democratic in November for Republicans to get back control of the House just because of these structural differences in how states where Republicans have control and how states where Democrats have control uh, have chosen to draw up their boundary lines. Uh, and certainly, I think if the Republicans go too far, we've seen in North Carolina that those boundary lines will get tied up in a lot of litigation. But the map that Republicans uh, built for the decade of the 2010s in North Carolina didn't really get overturned into something that had to be more fair until after there had already been four elections under it. Finally, for this last election, Democrats were able to pick up a couple House seats because the courts made the Republicans draw more fair congressional lines. But that may not be the case at the start of the decade. So that's sort of an interesting uh, thing to think about heading into this next election is that just structural reasons might be enough to put Republicans back in charge of the House at the very least. Well, you know, I, I've looked a little bit. It, it looks like to me by gaining a seat um, in, in the, uh, the number of House seats that we have, it's going to make that a little bit more possible because if the Republicans uh, even say within the rules uh, that the courts have set up, they can probably divide some of the districts that are now Democratic to a point where it, uh, it becomes beneficial to them. Uh, to the Republican side. So uh, Yeah, right now we have an eight to five Republican House delegation. And my guess is that the, the decision Republicans will have to make with that new district and, and the opportunity to draw new lines is they're going to have to decide whether they only, quote unquote, make themselves a 10 to four Republican map or if they try to get an 11 to three Republican map. But at any rate, you're going to be going from having only three more Republicans than Democrats to I would expect at the least six more Republicans than Democrats and possibly eight more Republicans than Democrats in the North Carolina delegation. And just that difference in North Carolina alone is almost enough to put Republicans back in charge of the U.S. House. Uh, and then we'll just see how everything goes in the courts over the, the rest of the decade. Probably if Republicans, quote unquote, settle for a 10 to 4 map, it's less likely to get overturned by the courts. Whatever they would have to do to get 11 to 3 uh, might be more likely to get thrown out. But I'm sure whatever happens, we will be in for another decade of litigation about our congressional maps as we've been more or less in a constant state of in this state for the last 30 years. Well, we're going to talk about in another segment of the program, we're going to talk about the uh, the great Senate race that we will be uh, hearing more, much more about uh, almost in the next month or so as uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, are all lining up to replace uh, Senator Burr. Uh, we'll yep. talk about that in more detail. But uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, globally, how does the Senate race look as far as the seats that will be open nationwide? Uh, forgetting North Carolina, uh, do the Democrats have a chance to strengthen their position or will it uh, uh, be weakened in the Senate? Because there's only one vote right now. In fact, it's a tie. Yeah, it's actually a fascinating Senate map for 2022. There's eight seats that I think really have the potential to be competitive, and four of them are currently held by Democrats, and four of them are currently held by Republicans. So that's about as split as it could be. 
The four seats that Democrats need to defend are in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire. In Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, Biden won all those states, but he won all of them by two points or less. And then he won New Hampshire by eight, but in New Hampshire, the very popular Republican governor might run, which helps overturn that. So the four seats Democrats need to defend are in very competitive states. And then the four seats that Republicans need to defend the most are in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, which Joe Biden narrowly won. And then the other two are North Carolina, which Trump won by a point, and Florida, which Trump won by three points. So it's really interesting that you have eight competitive races, which I think is more than you usually have in an election cycle, four Democratic held, four Republican held, and they're all in states that were very competitive in last year's presidential race. So it should be a very exciting Senate cycle. And it's really a world where you could end up with anything from Democrats up 54 to 46, all the way to Republicans up 54 to 46, depending on how those eight races move. Well, we, we want to focus in more detail in the North Carolina Senate race, because believe me, we're going to hear a lot about it as the political ads start rolling out and they will be starting out pretty soon. And we'll do that when we come back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Tom Jensen, the director of public policy polling. And we'll be back right after these messages with another segment. You stay tuned. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Our guest this week on Carolina Newsmakers is Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling. And we spent almost the entire segment, uh, the first segment, talking about the uh, political climate, not only in North Carolina, but uh, across the, the country. And uh, basically what Tom said was it hadn't changed a lot since November. Uh, so we're going to leave that for just a moment and talk about some other things. One of the things that is uh, fascinating to me right now is we have this matter of vaccinations and uh, we have a number of people that uh, uh, are not uh, choosing to take the vaccination. A lot of people are offended by having to wear masks. Uh, and yet the COVID-19 situation has flared up again with this new variants. Uh, have you done any polling on how people feel and is that changing any or what's the story? 
Well, we've been doing a lot of polling about vaccination and sort of people's attitudes towards vaccination. And with the emergence of the Delta variant, there has been sort of an interesting shift in the numbers on that. And uh, it's sort of a confusing shift. What we had generally been finding when it seemed like things were at, were under control with COVID was we were generally finding about 30% of people said that they were never going to get vaccinated. And that was what we were finding in poll after poll is that just about a third of the population said, no, we're never going to get vaccinated. Uh, and what we've seen sort of happen over the last few weeks as the Delta variant has taken off is we're not necessarily seeing a big increase in the percentage of people who say they're going to get vaccinated, but there's a lot less people who say, I will never get vaccinated. And there's a lot more people who say, I'm not sure about getting vaccinated. So people have sort of moved in the equation from uh, I will never get vaccinated to sort of still thinking about it, open to the thought, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's going to be the really interesting trend to watch over the next month is, are there any messengers? Is there any messaging that can make this segment of people who have sort of moved from the no way ever to I'll think about it some more camp, whether those folks end up deciding to get vaccinated or not? So that's the the big shift we've seen in recent weeks is not so much that a lot more people say they will get vaccinated because of the Delta variant, but a lot more people at least putting it on the table as something they possibly might do in the future. What about masks? Any uh, change of thoughts about masks, especially uh, uh, for the students uh, in the elementary grades? Or have you pulled on that? We have pulled on it and people support masks, especially in schools. That's something where um, the public debate uh, in terms of sort of how you see people fighting with each other about it on the internet and that sort of thing, that's a lot more closely divided than actual public opinion is. When we have polled on this issue, people br pretty broadly say that they think that masks in schools are a good idea, es especially with how things have trended recently. Yeah. And you're polling on COVID-19 and the recovery. Uh, anything else interesting that, uh, that you're finding? Well, I just think that, that one thing that's just interesting is, I mean, we know that there's polarization about who's getting the vaccine and who's not, but the extent of it is still kind of remarkable. We did a poll in Georgia this week, and we asked people if they were vaccinated, and we asked them if they approved of Biden. Among the people in Georgia who have been vaccinated, Biden has a 62% approval rating, 33% disapprove. And among the people who haven't been vaccinated, Biden has a 3% approval rating, 94% disapprove. 94% of people in Georgia who haven't been vaccinated disapprove of Biden. So we were talking a little bit earlier about how it seems like a lot of people are sort of taking their cues about everything from how they feel about the president. That's somewhere where we really see an instance of it is that Biden's out there really pushing people to get the vaccine and that may be pushing people who don't like him even further and further away from getting the vaccine. Uh, and that's why it's a situation where it would probably be good if Donald Trump uh, devoted more of his post-presidential energy to encouraging people to get vaccinated like he did, um, because Biden clearly is just pushing those people away. But among the people in Georgia who say they're not going to get vaccinated, 84% have a favorable opinion of Trump, only 7% unfavorable. So there's really not much doubt who would be the most effective messenger to those folks. It's just a question of whether he'd rather spend his energy on that 
or spend his energy on things like putting out statements saying that he's glad that the women's soccer team lost in the Olympics. What, uh, so uh, anything else uh, uh, in your polling on vaccinations as far as reasons other than uh, apparently being swayed by political figures, any other reasons that uh, make up a significant amount of people on reasons why they're not uh, choosing to take the vaccination? I think politics really? definitely are the, the dominant overarching factor there. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's move to another topic. Uh, and uh, uh, as I look down the long list of things that are on my list, uh, one of them, of course, is uh, uh, the NIL thing that's happening to athletics. Uh, have you done any polling on what, what people are thinking about name, image, and likeness, and the ability of college athletes now to sell and get endorsements and get paid, essentially? We haven't done any polling on that, but I have a pretty good sense that this is an issue that's very similar to something like gay marriage or marijuana legalization, where you're going to see a big generational divide, where younger people are totally on board with letting student athletes profit from playing and older people who are much more used to sort of the traditional system are going to be a lot more resistant to it. And I think it's something that then over time, you're going to see it moving from maybe being unpopular to becoming more and more and more popular because it's something that there's likely to be such a big generational split about. Uh, so it's still sort of in the infant stages. And I don't know if people know enough about how it's really going to play out to have uh, strong opinions yet about it one way or the other. But I think it is going to end up being one of those things that isn't so much a partisan issue as so many things are these days. And it's going to end up being more of a generational issue. And it's the kind of thing where as contentious as, as it is now, I think it's the kind of thing that in 20 or 25 years, people look back and sort of find it hard to believe that it was ever the other way around. I think it's going to end up being one of those things within American society that uh, we took for granted for so long that it was a certain way and then it changes. And then I think it's going to end up being something where future generations look back and can't believe it was the way that it was for so long. That's sort of how I see that issue playing out. Well, Tom, you've done some polling for our company. And one of the things that you've always stressed to me is it's so important how you ask the question to keep uh, from leading, uh, from uh, uh, leading the person into a particular answer. When you have an opinion on how something's going to come out, uh, how do you keep yourself when you're uh, setting up the questions uh, from setting up a question that uh, actually confirms your beliefs, your personal beliefs? Oh, I mean, it's, it's very easy to just make sure that you're asking a question in a balanced manner. Uh, you sort of read it and make sure, you know, is there anything about this question that might push people in one direction or the other? Uh, within our company, I no longer, because we have so much business, write very many of the polls directly myself. But every poll that we do comes through me to review before we actually put it out in the field. And I'll go through every question and make sure that I don't think that it's steering people in one direction or another. And if I do think it's steering people in one direction or another, I'll make suggestions for editing it to try to make it uh, more fair and balanced and that sort of thing. So that's just sort of part of the trade after a long time is uh, you maybe have seen over times how asking something in a certain way did sort of uh, skew it the wrong way. And then you can learn how to, to do it a different way. 
One really interesting example of that happened in 2012 uh, when North Carolina was voting on uh, the amendment to make marriage between one man and one woman in the state constitution. Uh, I remember about a month before the election, Elon did a poll where they asked people if they supported or opposed banning gay marriage. And people said two to one that they opposed banning gay marriage. Uh, and of course, the marriage amendment passed by 20 points. So that Elon poll was like 50 points different from what happened. And the reason was that the ballot language said, do you support or oppose defining marriage in North Carolina as being between one man and one woman? Well, that sounded perfectly innocuous and people said they were fine with that. But when you said banning gay marriage, even though that is what the amendment did in practice, uh, people didn't like that because that sounded like you were taking away people's rights, like you were being punitive. Uh, and that difference between using the word defining marriage and banning gay marriage, even though you were ending up in the same place from a policy standpoint, led to a 50 point difference in how people sort of reacted to the question. So over time, you just kind of become aware of those little nuances and make sure that you're careful about not falling into those traps. Well, I would imagine that's a really good thing because, it, it, as we've said, it's very easy to lead people into a particular answer, uh, whether it's uh, on purpose. And, of course, the whole reason for polling is to find out what people are really thinking. And so you want honest answers. I mean, you know, because the people paying you to do polling want to know what the story is. They don't want to, to prove their point. They want to know. Sure. Okay, so um, any other, uh, 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 we got about three minutes left in this segment, and I've looked down on the list, and uh, uh, one of the things that Jason has written down is the future of Mike Pence. Where, you know, he sort of disappeared from the public view here. What, uh, have you done any polling on Mike Pence? We have not done any polling on Mike Pence. I, to, to be very honest, uh, to your point, I haven't given a lot of thought to, to Mike Pence since he left the White House. But if Donald, Trump, a lot of people have. <laughs> if Donald Trump doesn't run for president in 2024 and Mike Pence does, we do know from previous polling that Mike Pence will be the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, but I don't know that he will. Uh, be unopposed for the Republican nomination. I think a lot of other people will be trying to get in on that too. He'll start out as the favorite, and then it's just going to be a question of whether other people can keep up with him or not. When we sort of go through recent history of vice presidents who ran for president, they pretty much all end up getting the nomination. There was a lot of opposition to Joe Biden, but he ended up getting it. There was some opposition to Al Gore in the form of Bill Bradley, but uh, he ended up getting it. Um, George H.W. Bush, you know, a lot of other people ran, but he ended up getting it. 1984, Walter Mondale, a lot of other people ran, but he ended up getting it. So we've repeatedly seen that if you were the vice president and you run for your party's nomination, you get your party's nomination. Uh, and Pence will, uh, I'm sure, run if uh, Trump doesn't. And he will start out as the favorite. And we'll just see if he's able to hold on to that favorite status the whole time like these other people in, in recent history have, or if uh, if he's actually weak enough that one of these other people who would like it overtakes them. Scenario, if Trump does decide to run, do you think Mike Pence will uh, elect not to run? Yeah, I think if Trump runs, you're not going to see a whole lot of other serious Republicans end up running. Uh, one thing that's a definite takeaway from these first 
uh, seven months with Trump out of the White House is that he still very much has the Republican Party uh, under his wing. Uh, a lot gets made of differences in the Republican Party and there being pro-Trump Republicans and there being anti-Trump Republicans. Uh, and the reality at the end of the day is that there are very few anti-Trump Republicans. The ones who do exist get a lot of attention because they're sort of so unusual, but there are not many of them. Uh, I was talking about that poll we did in Georgia this week. On that poll, we found that 83% of Georgia Republicans have a favorable opinion of Trump only 11% have a negative opinion of him. Uh, and I think that's about what it is within the GOP. About 10% of Republican voters don't like Trump. Our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. In the next segment, we're going to focus on the uh, Senate race here in North Carolina, which will soon be very much in the news, already in the news, as a matter of fact, but even more so here in the next 15 months or so. And we will do that when we continue with... Uh, Carolina Newsmakers, so you stay tuned. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step. But you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest this week on Carolina Newsmakers is Tom Jensen. He's been with us, I don't know how many times, but numerous times. He, of course, is the director of public policy polling, a company that does polling not only here in the state of North Carolina, but also across the country. And his uh, polling work has been recognized as some of the best. Uh, they have proven themselves time after time with accurate polling. And uh, as uh, I've said in talking with others, sometimes they don't always find out what you want, uh, the way you want it to be, but they usually find out uh, what the, the story is and, and have been pretty accurate with all of their uh, forecasts and so forth. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, Tom, let's, let's focus on a race that's going to be very much in the news nationally. And that is uh, the uh, so-called Senator Burr seat here in North Carolina that will be up. Senator Burr is elected not to seek re-election. Um, and uh, so the Democrats are lining up, the Republicans are lining up, and uh, with the Senate currently at 50-50, this is one of those eight races that you mentioned earlier that will determine who has control of the Senate for the next uh, two years. 
so what are you, uh, let, let's take, I guess, each party and talk about the candidates, first of all, for that particular party, and then we can get down to how you think it's going to come out. So let, let's start with, uh, since it's a, an incumbent Republican seat, let's start with the Republican candidates. Uh, one of the things that, of course, has already happened is uh, uh, President Trump has endorsed one of the candidates. Uh, so uh, sort of give us a summary of the the uh, candidates are running, and then we can talk about what you uh, have found. Yeah, so you have three major candidates on the Republican side, uh, and that's former Governor Pat McCrory, Congressman Ted Budd from the triad, and former Congressman Mark Walker, also from the triad. Uh, Pat McCrory definitely starts out as the front runner in the race, but that is a product of name recognition more than anything else. He's the only one of that trio who's run statewide and he's run statewide three times for a high profile office. So he starts out with the lead in the Republican primary. And, and I think the other Republicans agree that that's the case. That's not really disputed that McCrory starts out as the front runner. Uh, but then you have this interesting situation where Donald Trump has endorsed Ted Budd. Uh, and there's sort of, I think, a general thought that if somebody gets the Donald Trump endorsement within the Republican Party, uh, that means that they're going to win the race. And it certainly is a big boost, but it's still not 100 percent that just because you get endorsed by Trump, that means everybody's going to listen to Trump and you're going to get your way. Probably the North Carolina Republican who's drawn the most attention so far in 2021 uh, is Congressman Madison Cawthorn from the mountains. And when he was running last year in a runoff for the Republican nomination, Trump endorsed his opponent and he still won two to one. So Madison Cawthorn won two to one, even though Trump endorsed his opponent. And that's good news for somebody like Pat McCrory or good news for somebody like Mark Walker, that Trump does not have a 100 percent golden touch within Republican primaries. Uh, and just in July, uh, there was a special election in Texas. Uh, to replace a congressman who died of COVID. Uh, and there were two Republicans running and the one who Trump endorsed lost. Uh, so it's not like you absolutely win if you get the Trump endorsement. It is great news for Ted Budd that he got the Trump endorsement. That's not a 100% ticket to victory. The other, thing that's, the other thing that's worth thinking about in the context of this race is that that McCrory coming back after being out of office for a while and having an early lead based on name recognition is a very similar situation to what former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty found himself in in 2018. He had been the governor of Minnesota, ran for president, didn't get the Republican nomination, decided he wanted to be governor of Minnesota again, uh, and he lost in the primary to somebody who he started out with a huge lead against. But it turned out that his primary opponent was sort of more in touch with what people wanted from a Republican in 2018, whereas Tim Pawlenty was maybe more what people wanted from a Republican in 2008. So that's something McCrory has to watch out for is whether these folks uh, who haven't run for statewide office before start out low because they don't have very high name recognition. But if once people get to know them, people decide they want that, they think that's more the future of the Republican Party, and they decide that McCrory was the past. Well, were you surprised uh, at the timing of the endorsement uh, being that far in advance of the uh, the election? I guess yeah. that's more of a, a personal question than it is a polling question. But I was sort of surprised that he endorsed uh, 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 Ted Budd so quickly. 
Well, it was on a Saturday night and I was sitting at the at a baseball game in the NCAA tournament and went on Twitter. And I certainly wasn't expecting major political news at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, uh, 17 months before the election. So I'm, I'm with you that that did come as quite a surprise that he went this early. And there also just isn't a totally clear reason why he is so enthusiastic about Bud as opposed to Walker or McCoy. They've all been pretty loyal to him. Uh, so that, that endorsement was a little bit quizzical to me. And one thing that's different about this Trump endorsement compared to some of the other ones he'll make is I'm pretty confident Trump doesn't hate any of these people running for the Senate in North Carolina. And I actually think that that's where Trump makes the biggest difference is if he hates somebody and goes and tells all his base that they should hate that person too. So I think it may be, let's let's think of this as, let's say that it ends up being a race between Bud and McCory. Trump's endorsement is not going to help Bud as much as it would if Trump went out and told everyone they should hate McCory too. But if Trump just says vote for Bud and leaves McCory alone, that doesn't like build up this hatred towards uh, McCory that Trump's done with some other Republicans. Like we did a poll this week that found 80 to 90 percent of Republicans in Alaska dislike Lisa Murkowski, who's been a Republican senator forever. Well, they dislike Murkowski because Trump hates her. When we do a poll about Mitt Romney, we find 80, 90 percent of Republicans disagree with him, even though the Romneys have been Republican family royalty in this country for 60 years. Well, it's because Trump hates them and Trump told those people to hate Romney. He hasn't told anybody to hate McCory. And that, I think, helps McCory have the endorsement of Bud not hurt McCory as much as it would if there was a lot of animosity behind it. Are you ready to go out on a limb and project uh, who you think will end up with the nomination? <laughs> um, I, I guess I would cautiously predict that McCory uh, still ends up winning it, but there's a lot of time left for, for all that to change. Okay, let's switch over to the Democrat uh, side because the Democrats would love to pick up this seat. This would be a key game for them. Uh, and let's uh, handicap the candidates there. So I guess I'd say there's three major candidates on the Democratic side for the Senate, and that's uh, former Chief Justice uh, Sherry Beasley, State Senator Jeff Jackson from Mecklenburg County. Uh, and then even though I don't really think she has a chance of winning the nomination, I still include former state Senator Erica Smith in that major candidate list, simply because she did get about a third of the vote in the primary for U.S. Senate last year against Cal Cunningham. So she did get a number of votes. I don't know if she'd still get those votes in a race with different uh, sort of candidate dynamics, but uh, the three of them sort of rise to the top. I think that Sherry Beasley is the favorite. Uh, she's certainly the most qualified candidate with all of her experience in statewide judicial office and having been chief justice. She's raising the most money of any of the candidates. Uh, I think that national group, she's who they would like to, to end up being the Democratic nominee. Uh, and then also something that's been a major trend in Democratic primaries across the entire country, really since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last summer, has been that Democrats are, are showing a strong tendency to want to nominate African-American candidates whenever possible. Uh, we've really sort of seen a situation when we've been polling uh, Senate primaries and congressional primaries and that sort of thing that most voters who are on the fence are ending up deciding that they think right now the Democratic Party should be putting forward African-American candidates uh, for these key offices. 
One race that was really interesting that we pulled on earlier this year was the mayor of Pittsburgh was up for re-election. He was a white guy. People liked him. He had a perfectly good approval rating, but he was defeated in the primary by an African-American candidate because even though they liked the incumbent just fine, uh, there's just a strong desire for the Democratic Party right now to be putting forward candidates of color for major offices. So uh, I think in a different world, Jeff Jackson would be a really strong candidate. He has a very strong social media following. Uh, he's raised a lot of money too. But I think in this climate, especially because she is the most qualified candidate to boot, I think uh, Sherry Beasley is going to likely end up with that nomination. I feel more comfortable with that prediction than I do with making a prediction about the Republicans right now. So at this point, I say that we're ending up with a race between uh, Beasley and McCrory, a very interesting race because you've got a former governor uh, running against a former chief justice, a, a black female running against a white male. Uh, so, uh, would you like to go out on the limb and project how that will end up? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't even feel like I'm going out on that much of a limb by saying this. Um, so I'll make a very specific prediction that the Republican ends up winning by two points, 51 to 49. And there's two things that sort of feed into that. Uh, number one, as I said, we're in a very similar political climate to last November. Things really haven't changed very much. <laughs> Well, what happened in the average statewide race last November? The Republican won by two points. Uh, so that lends itself to thinking that a Republican would win 51-49. And then the other broader reason is that North Carolina over the last four election cycles has repeatedly shown itself to be a 51-49 state. When you sort of take all the races together for 2014, Republicans won 51-49. 2016, Republicans won 51-49. 2018, Democrats won 5149. 2020, Republicans won 5149. We really are about as closely divided a state as we possibly can be. And we've been very close to 50 50 four election cycles in a row. But three out of those four times, it's ended up slightly on the Republican side of the fence. And certainly, history tells us that the first midterm for a new president usually goes against his party. Uh, so that lends itself to a strong, uh, to a slight Republican victory, too. Now, the one thing that could be different about this midterm election is that we've had this big resorting in American politics during the Trump years and since he left office, where Democrats are now the party of more well-educated people, Republicans are the party of less well-educated people. Usually in midterm elections, Republicans have done a better job of showing up to vote than Democrats have. But it's also a historic trend that better educated people are more likely to show up in midterm elections than less well-educated people. So the thing that could let Democrats win in North Carolina next year and let Democrats win next year more broadly across the country is if their newly highly educated base turns out at a much higher level than this Trump base that includes a lot of less well-educated voters who might be less likely to turn out for an election where Trump's not on the ballot. That's the argument that next year could actually end up being a good year for Democrats is if their voters turn out and Republicans don't, reflecting the shift in the education basis of both parties. Okay, North Carolina is still growing a great deal. It's, it's uh, almost every list. It's listed as a place that people would like to live, move to. So our growth factor is still there. As new people come into the state, is this changing the dynamic or is it coming in just 
pretty much like everything else, it makes North Carolina a 50-50 purple state. Well, I do think the new voters who move in are uh, are a little bit more on the blue side of the spectrum. They're moving here from places like Connecticut and New York and California that have traditionally voted Democratic. And I do think that's a big piece of why we've become a swing state for president, whereas we used to be a pretty reliably Republican state. As recently as uh, 2004, George W. Bush won the state by 12 points, uh, and we really were very solidly red. And since then, the most lopsided of the last four presidential elections was a four-point decision. And the average margin when you add up all of the last four presidential elections is a two-point difference in the state. In-migration has really contributed to making North Carolina a swing state. Interesting. Uh, our guest is Tom Jensen. In the last segment, which will be coming up in just a few moments, we're going to talk about the uh, uh, importance of the independent or unaffiliated vote. And we're going to ask Tom about the issues that the GOP and the Democrats should focus on. And we'll do that when we return right after these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mom my. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Bet he can't say that in reverse. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. It was very hard for me, but Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. At age 47, Marco finished his high school diploma. 50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This is our last segment, and it's with Tom Jensen, who's the Director of Public Policy Polling. Tom has been with us a number of times through the years and uh, always shares with us the results of his polling and his uh, knowledge of what's going on is based on all his polling, not only here in North Carolina, but across the country. And uh, Tom, we promised when we started that we were going to focus a little bit on the, uh, in, the importance of the independent or unaffiliated voters. We've been talking about Democrats and Republicans, but in North Carolina, we obviously have uh, almost uh, a plurality now of uh, unaffiliated voters. Uh, and that list goes up, but obviously everyone who's unaffiliated leans one way or the other. They're not uh, without uh, opinions on, on uh, issues. And so we have this large number of people who are registered unaffiliate, which means that during the primary, they can elect to vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. Well, what are you finding out about unaffiliated in North Carolina? Do more of them lean Republican or lean Democratic? 
Well, you made a really good point that most of these people aren't true independent voters. They might be unaffiliated, but most of them either vote Democratic or Republican most of the time. Uh, and I'd say it's pretty evenly split between those two groups. I think about half the unaffiliateds in North Carolina who lean strongly one way, lean towards the Democrats, and about half lean strongly towards the Republicans. I think that uh, you could do a poll today and 90% of people in the state could tell you exactly which party you're going to vote for, they're going to vote for, for the U.S. Senate next November. So you're really talking about 10% of the state that's truly undecided voters who are sort of open to going either way. And the historic trend with these voters uh, is that they just end up, well, they, they hate everyone. They don't like Democrats or Republicans, and that's part of why they're unaffiliated. But what they end up doing most of the time is voting for the party that's out of power. So when the Republicans are in charge, they think Republicans are terrible and they vote Democratic to try to get a change. And then when the Democrats are in charge, they decide that the Democrats are terrible and they vote Republican to try to get a change. And that's one of the big reasons that midterm elections traditionally have gone so well for the party that's out of power is these people who are never gonna be happy with anybody just end up always voting for change. Uh, and it doesn't mean they like the Republicans. And if the Republicans get back in, then four years later, they'll be voting Democratic, voting for change in the other direction. Uh, but those sorts of voters are really what contributes, especially in a 50-50 state like North Carolina, to sort of having the power go back and forth and back and forth is they just vote against. I shouldn't even really say they vote for, they just vote against whoever they're fed up with at a particular moment. So do you see this trend continuing with more and more people registering unaffiliated despite whatever their personal leanings are, or do you think it's about capped out? No, I absolutely think that it'll continue increasing exponentially. Within the next five years, we'll definitely have more unaffiliated voters than Democrats or Republicans in the state. And I would think within 10 to 15 years, a majority of voters in the state will be unaffiliated. There's a couple different reasons for that. One is that younger voters feel no affinity for the political parties at all. They might mostly vote Democratic, but they still think that the Democratic Party itself is terrible. You think about all those young people who voted for Bernie Sanders. They're very liberal, and that's why they supported Bernie Sanders. But they also don't like the Democratic Party because they think that the Democratic Party blocked Bernie Sanders. So a lot of voters like that are going to be registering unaffiliated because they don't like either party. And then just in general, you see people not liking either party. Uh, neither. It's not like you have that many people who are terribly enthusiastic about either the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, so when they get that registration, they just end up registering unaffiliated. So I do think that we are soon going to have a, a, an unaffiliated plurality in the state. And uh, sometime in, 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 in our lifetimes, we'll have an unaffiliated majority. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you talk to a lot of people who have changed from one party or the other to unaffiliated. There's absolutely no reason to ever change back because you can still vote in the primary of your choice. So there's actually very little reason to, uh, unless you're thinking about running for office. What's bothered me more about the huge number of unaffiliated is these people are basically out of the pool to be a political candidate because if you're not a Democrat or Republican, it's going to be very difficult to get a nomination. And that worries me a great deal with the large number of people who are actually taking themselves out of the pool as candidates. And does that worry you? 
Well, it's something that I, I'll be interested to see how that changes over time. If we reach the point where you actually can be viable uh, as a candidate for office, if you are an unaffiliated candidate, if this proliferation of unaffiliated will actually sort of bring a situation where people might be willing to vote for somebody who's not of the major parties, or if that's just not a thing that happens one way or the other, uh, I sort of feel like the the larger that unaffiliated pool gets, the more possible it's going to be that you actually start to have unaffiliated candidates be uh, viable candidates for office. We, we've actually elected at least one legislator that I can think of in the last decade who did run as an unaffiliated candidate, but he was a more conservative sort of guy, and he was the de facto Republican candidate in the district. He probably would have lost if there had been an actual Republican candidate on the ballot. Uh, so it'll definitely be interesting to see uh, how that dynamic sort of shifts in the in the coming years. Oh, we've got about six minutes left, and I'd like to spend about three minutes on both sides of this issue, and that is talking about the issues that the Republicans should focus on and issues that the Democrats should focus on if they want to change the dynamic in the midterm election some 15 months from now. So if you'll watch the clock, spend about half the time on each party and, and tell us what issues, if you were advising GOP candidates or Democratic candidates, that they should focus on. Well, the number one thing I would tell Republicans that they need to focus on is uh, changing the perception that they're really a party of extremists. Uh, we frankly should be right now in a very pro-Republican political climate. All historical trends tell us that at this point in the political calendar, seven months into a new Democratic president's term, uh, that the Republicans should be uh, in very good shape going into next year. And they're not in good shape. And I think the reason that they're not in good shape is because of things like the insurrection at the Capitol and the unwillingness to really do an honest uh, investigation of what happened with the insurrection and continuing to sort of bow down to Trump on every issue and that sort of thing. What Republicans really need more than anything else is they had this incredible growth in their party base over the last five years because of Trump, where a lot of people who haven't really been a part of the political process before came into it because Trump appealed to them in a way that no candidate ever had before. Uh, and those people's number one overarching sort of characteristic is that they hate the Democrats. So that's what holds them together is hating Democrats, hating liberals, hating lots of different people. That's sort of the new Republican Party base. But what they need if they're going to be successful in future elections is to get back some of these historically moderate Republicans who were so repulsed by the direction of the party over the last four years that they jumped ship. And those are the kind of people who see something like the insurrection and say, I'm going to keep not voting for Republicans, even though I may agree with Republicans on taxes and a lot of economic issues, they've just gotten too extreme culturally for me to want to be a part of that. They need to find a way to bring those people back in the fold without losing these people who Trump newly energized. And so I think that's the biggest thing. It's not for Republicans. I don't think of what they need as something being an issue like healthcare or education or something like that. It's really sort of more a broader thematic thing where they just need to sort of change their image and come across differently as a party so that they can get those moderate suburban voters who bailed to the Democrats over the last five years back into the fold. What about the Democrats? I think 
when you look at issues broadly, voters are generally on the same page with Democrats. You talk about something like healthcare, voters are on the same page with Democrats. You talk about something like education, voters are on the same page with Democrats. This temporary issue of COVID, people agree more with the Democrats about vaccination. People agree more with the Democrats about um, masks. You know, Democrats have public opinion with them on sort of the core issues that are going on. But I think the thing Democrats need to be careful about is not coming across as being too far to the left uh, and turning off people who, who are repulsed by Trump. But then they say the Democrats are just as bad. So I guess I'll just vote Republican because that's what I'm used to doing. I think the biggest thing that hurt Democrats last year was the perception that they supported defunding the police. Uh, that is something that is just not a view that's popular with just about anyone. Uh, when we go into sort of politically competitive districts and ask, do you support or oppose the idea of defunding the police? We usually find that about 20 or 25 percent of voters say they support that. About 70 percent of voters say they oppose it. And the reality is you didn't really have that many significant Democratic politicians running around last year saying defund the police. But the party people who were saying that were loud enough that it got turned into a perception that that was what the whole Democratic Party was about, was defund the police, defund the police. And people are so scared of that idea that Democrats are so extreme and that they're going to let law and order fall apart, that then agreeing with the Democrats on healthcare and education and COVID, that all falls by the wayside because that thing that a certain swath of the party is promoting that sounds so extreme to your average voter, that's out uh, outweighing everything else in sort of terms of people's calculation. So I guess I'm actually giving a very similar answer from different directions for both the Democrats and the Republicans, is that I think both of them need to sort of tone down some of their most extreme supporters, come across as being sort of more in the middle of the road, and then they'll have A, a better chance of getting those voters in the middle. But the other thing that's so important these days is a lot of the time what motivates voters is who is more scared of the opposite side. So like in 2018, Democrats had a huge year because Democrats were so scared of Trump and the Republicans going off the rails and Republicans didn't have that same sort of sense of urgency. But then with defund the police in 2020, Republicans did have that sense of urgency. Oh my goodness, we must stop. The country from these Democrats and defunding the police. I think if either side could sort of bring the temperature down, they might not provide the sort of motivation for the other side to turn out that then causes you to lose because so many other people vote for the other side that it outweighs your side. Well, and of course, the interesting thing about everything you've said is one side can say something, but the other side can run negative ads pointing out the, the same weakness of the other party. So that's uh, going to be something interesting to watch. Well, I've left myself an awkward amount of time, not enough time to give uh, Tom a chance to answer a good question. So I, I'll just hold it to the next time around. Tom Jensen's been our guest. He's the director of public policy polling. If you've missed part of the broadcast and like to hear a repeat, you can go online, carolinanewsmakers.com and hear just that. And on our network of stations, it carries the 30 minute version. Remember, there's two more segments. And again, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments. Jason Kong has produced our program and he'll have another guest for us next week on the same group of stations. And so well, next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.